Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm Paul Henley. In a moment, we'll get reaction to the announcement by the Trump administration to scrap a scheme that protected young undocumented immigrants in the United States from deportation. Also coming up on the programme, the Syrian army breaks through to a key government enclave after years of siege by Islamic State militants. And we're trying to answer the question, what's the rationale behind Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons programme? I don't know that he has a master plan that he's pursuing, but what we have seen is that he's going to continue to push the, the technical development of these programs until he's either forced to stop or until somebody puts an offer on the table that's enticing to him and convinces him to change course. Now, after several days of speculation, he prompted that President Trump might scrap an amnesty for immigrants called DACA. We now know he will. DACA was brought in by an executive order of President Obama's. It declared that foreigners who entered the U.S. illegally when they were children should be allowed to stay, provided they hadn't done anything else illegal since. On the campaign train trail, Donald Trump said being tough on illegal immigration was one of his top priorities. In the last hour, the former U.S. president, President Obama, called the step wrong, self-defeating and cruel. The announcement of President Trump's decision came at a news briefing in Washington from the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. The DACA program was implemented in 2012 and essentially provided a legal status for recipients for a renewable two-year term, worker authorization, and other benefits including participation in the Social Security program uh, to 800,000 mostly adult illegal aliens. I asked our Washington correspondent Richard Lister first to explain what DACA was and how many people were affected by it. Well, the fundamental problem that uh, Congress has been kicking around for about really the past 16 years or so is that you have people who were brought in as children by their parents illegally into the United States. Uh, And to a great extent, most of them have never known any other country but the United States. Uh, They are uh, really American in, in all ways apart from legally. And so, as I say, for 16 years, Congress has been trying to find some way to resolve this issue. Uh, The consensus from the American public, if the polls are to be believed, is that really these people should be allowed to stay in the United States. But conservative Republicans believe that's the thin end of the wedge. And if you if you allow them to stay, you create uh, a situation where more people will come into the country illegally, hoping hoping that the same thing will happen to them. Well, Donald Trump sided with that view when he ran for the presidency, saying that what President Obama had done to allow these people to stay was illegal and he would repeal it. And over the past six months, he's been clearly listening to the voices who say that's not necessarily what America wants. But today he decided it was time to act and that's what he did. And how easy will it be to repeal it? Well, it's, it is actually relatively easy. He could have done it with a stroke of a pen because uh, he's the president now and he could repeal President Obama's executive order, which set this, this program up. Uh, but he did, he, clearly he decided that that was much too controversial. So he's really kicked it back to Congress and said, look, this will happen in six months. But in the meantime you need to come up with some kind of legislative solution to this. And so he's really made it up to Congress now to decide uh, on the ultimate future of these 800,000 individuals. 
Richard Lister in Washington. I've been speaking to one DACA recipient and former finalist for something called Texan of the Year. She's Carla Perez, who came to the States illegally with her parents from Mexico City when she was two. She's now 24 and nearing the end of a law degree at the University of Houston. And she and her parents still live in Texas without official residency papers. Today's decision by President Trump means that she faces an uncertain future. I am outraged today. This administration, uh, led by Donald Trump, has, you know, he has proven himself to be not only cruel but a coward by having have Jeff Sessions, who was all too giddy to make this announcement. These are men who have consistently sided with white supremacy. And so this is just complete cruelty. I, like many other DACA recipients, will continue to fight right now to ensure that there are no gaps in protection for people. Of course, Carla, you live in a democracy and President Trump was democratically elected on a campaign in which he wasn't shy about his opposition to illegal immigrants. It's a, it was a predictable outcome, wasn't it? I think it's not surprising. Again, this is someone who has a, um, even before the presidency, track record of being too friendly with people who hold racist ideals. Let's look at this legally, though. Do you accept, as a lawyer, the argument that President Obama didn't have the constitutional power to introduce DACA from which you've benefited? For one, I'm not an attorney and I'm not a constitutional attorney. Um, I'm studying to become a public interest immigration lawyer. And with that, I, I would add that The United States government has successfully defended the legality of DACA uh, several times. And this uh, action that the president has has taken, I think it's important to ground people in that it is a cruel, immoral action. I think it's the duty of of, of people to uh, disobey and, and, and thus make changes to unjust laws um, just because something is a law does not necessarily make it a situation where people can live fully and, and with dignity. Um, so I would caution people with that, but also remind them that DACA has been defended uh, several times successfully by the U.S. government. Aren't there moments when you can empathize with many Americans who are not white supremacists at all, who simply think that people who are in their country illegally without papers should not be allowed to stay? I think it's important to consider the reasons why people are forced to leave their, their homes. Uh, no one, you know, grows up thinking, you know, one day I want to abandon all that I have ever known. And so I think it's important to take in consideration even U.S. involvement in other countries that has forced people like me out of their home countries. I think it's important to recognize that that ultimately this is an issue of racism is not about the rule of law. I think people are very uncomfortable with the fact that, that many immigrants here in the U.S., including undocumented black immigrants, undocumented Asian immigrants uh, who are a growing um, sector of our community, are people of color. You're going to graduate soon. What are your prospects, uh, given today's decision by the president, of being able to work as a lawyer straight away? My plans for myself do not change um, after the decision today. Um, I have many mentors in the legal community who are some of the best immigration attorneys in the country, public interest immigration attorneys. 
who have mentored me since I was in college to prepare me for the moment when I can be an immigration attorney. And while it is true, it is uncertain if I will be able to practice law immediately, nothing that happened today will stop me from preparing for that moment where I will be able to live out my dream, which is to represent survivors of gender-based violence as a public interest immigration attorney. Carla Perez, a 24-year-old DACA recipient in Texas. Marguerite Telford is the Director of Communications for the Centre for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C., which favours significantly reduced legal and illegal immigration to the U.S. I asked for her reaction to President Trump's decision. Let me first say I'm a bit offended that the recipient, DACA recipient you just had on, considers any of us who think that the DACA was an unconstitutional, illegal act by President Obama, that we're all racist. I, that greatly offends me because I actually am a lawyer. And I know that Attorney General Sessions is coming down in the same way. And I think he's a brilliant lawyer. And I don't think that people understand what's happened because you have court cases from states. Texas has said September 5th, if you don't get rid of DACA, we are going to sue the administration for an illegal act. And so Trump's back was against the wall. So what he let it just run its course and go to the court system. It could be terminated because the court has recently decided that DAPA, which is very similar, really may well be unconstitutional. So she's actually wrong to think that it's played out in court and the courts have found the legality of DACA. That's absolutely not true. And I think to call people racists that view the Constitution differently is someone who doesn't have enough arguments to make. But um, anyway, I think... But apart from the the legal argument, do you have moral and political ones as well, reasons for supporting the president's decision? Well, first of all, it was an illegal, unconstitutional act, so it should have been with Congress. What people forget is that the DREAM Act was in Congress, and Congress didn't pass it. And President Obama himself said, I'm not king. I can't do these things by myself. When I talk to immigration advocates, they wish I could just bypass Congress and change the law myself. I can't do it. That's not how democracy works. That's what Obama said, and then he did it anyway. So now what we have is Attorney General Sessions coming in. The rule of law is back. The separation of powers is back. And it'll go to Congress, where it should have been in the first place. They didn't pass it. They did not pass it. And Obama said, I'll just do it anyway. So now it goes back to Congress. They have six months. They have six months. And in that time, no current beneficiaries are going to automatically lose their benefits as a result of the changes. And over the next six months, we'll see the program's going to wind down. It means no new people can sign up. Everyone who has signed up stays signed up. Um, no so people won't be deported then, will they not? No, that's ridiculous. No, they're saying that to scare people and to make Trump look like a horrible person. But it'll wind down, and the current beneficiaries will lose the ability to renew their work permits. It'll, it's going to continue for six months, and that gives Congress six months to get their act together and to make a decision on what should happen to this population. And by the way, the, she may have come in here when she was two, but the overwhelming majority were much older when they came in. In fact, the biggest group were like 14 and 15-year-olds, and the majority were males. And a lot of those people didn't come over as children carried in their ch- mother's arms. They walked across the border on their own. Are you comfortable with people who've grown up all their lives, say from one or two in the States, not knowing another country, uh, simply being told to get out now? Because... Even if you don't deport people who have DACA status now, that could happen in the future. 
well, first of all, we have 11 million people who have, haven't been deported yet. But, you know, I think it's a whole fallacy, this no, no other country. If you live here in, your, in Mexico or Guatemala until you're 14 or 15, you know, my kids spent up until they were 13. My daughter lived out of this country. We lived in England. We lived in Canada. We lived in France. We lived in, in Copenhagen. At no time did my kids up until that age feel like they weren't American or feel like they went back home, they wouldn't fit in. You know, I think that it would be better off. I mean, Republicans have said, and we have said at CIS for a very, very long time, that there was a section of these kids, young people, who deserved an amnesty. But I actually have to say, I think that the number was way too large, choosing, you know, 15-year-olds. It should have been people who came in under age six or under age eight. Um, I think by age 15, I think you identify with your country, and I think that you probably could go back Marguerite Telford, the Director of Communications for the Centre for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Coming up, the remarkable story of the father who smuggled himself into IS territory in an attempt to rescue his young children. I picked up my little girl and told my other daughter, run. My youngest started crying. The Turkish border guards were just 50 metres away and they began shooting. We dived into an irrigation ditch and hid there with bullets flying overhead. More of Artur's story later. The latest headlines from the BBC newsroom. The Trump administration is scrapping a scheme that protected young undocumented immigrants in the United States from deportation. The UN chief says there's an urgent need to give the stateless Muslim Rohingya minority currently fleeing Myanmar some form of legal status. And one of Colombia's most powerful drug gangs says it wants to hand itself in. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. The Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, has warned that what he called the military hysteria over North Korea could lead to global catastrophe. Speaking at a summit in China, Mr Putin also said that imposing further sanctions on Pyongyang was unlikely to work. He said North Koreans, quote, would rather eat grass than abandon their nuclear weapons programme. Well, the North Korean ambassador to the United Nations, Han Tae-sung, today described his country's recent nuclear and missile tests as gift packages to the United States. Speaking in Geneva, Han Tae-sung warned Washington there could be more to come. The recent self-defensive measures by my country, DPRK, a gift package addressed to none other than the US. The US will receive more gift packages from my country as long as it rely on reckless provocations and fertile attempt to put, to put pressure on the DPRK. So why does Kim Jong-un appear to be racing to develop and test all these weapons in quick succession? There are many theories, but they are, of course, just that, theories. Is he continuing the legacy of his father and grandfather? Is it an attempt to get respect for his country? I've been discussing this with John Wolfstall, who is former Special Assistant for National Security Affairs under President Obama. 
One of the theories is that because this nuclear effort began back in the 1950s under Kim Il-sung, that this is something that's integral to the Kim dynasty and their control of North Korea. There is some evidence that just as his grandfather and his father pursued nuclear technology as a means of demonstrating national capability, the Kim Jong-un is dedicated to this. But he has linked himself to a nuclear weapons program and a long-range missile program much more closely than either his father or grandfather, and clearly views it as a central pillar of his ability to remain in power and control North Korea. If he's looking for respect, who is he looking for respect from? Well, it, it, it's unclear. Um, you know, I don't subscribe to the idea that he's doing this out of some personal need. North Korean leaders, both him and his father, have talked for decades about wanting North Korea to assume its rightful place as an equal among nations and even as a, a legitimate nuclear weapon state among a small group of countries. And so I think he wants not just to be treated with respect, but what he means when he says respect is that they should not be under sanctions for pursuing missiles, uh, that they shouldn't face economic penalties for building nuclear weapons. They're just doing what the United States, Russia, and China have done. Uh, and so why should they be treated any differently? Clearly, he views his prestige as a major part of his leadership and ability to control the country. And so he wants both the military capability and the respect that he thinks comes with it. How would nuclear weapons be a means to splitting the arch enemy, the US, from its allies? So this is a, an issue and a, and a problem that the United States faced throughout the Cold War, especially once the Soviet Union developed the missiles and nuclear weapons to target U.S. territory. The concern among many in Seoul is a question of whether the United States would really be willing to trade or risk Seattle to protect Seoul. Is the United States prepared to risk a nuclear attack from North Korea to meet its treaty commitments to protect an ally? I don't have any doubt, I don't think anybody in the U.S. government has any doubt, that the U.S. would protect South Korea and Japan with everything at its disposal. But it's a very hard thing to convince people in South Korea that that's the case, just as it was hard to convince people in Poland or Germany or France that that was the case. And so North Korea may believe that they can divide the U.S. from its allies by threatening American territory, or at the very least destabilize the alliance by threatening the ability to do so. What's your favorite theory, John, on why Kim Jong-un is doing this now? Well, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of evidence to support multiple theories. I personally believe that not only is Kim Jong-un deterrable, um, but he's continuing to do this in part because he can. And he himself doesn't have to decide whether he's going to be more aggressive or less aggressive until the situation develops. Um, once he has mastered a long-range missile capability and nuclear capability, he can let the circumstances dictate his reaction. If the United States appears weak and divided and the alliance system is not working, he can take advantage of that. On the other hand, if he feels threatened and China is imposing greater sanctions, he may become more aggressive, feeling that he is protected by his nuclear shield. So I don't know that he has a master plan that he's pursuing, but what we have seen is that he's going to continue to push the, the technical development of these programs until he's either forced to stop or until somebody puts an offer on the table that's enticing to him and convinces him to change course. John Wolfstall, the former Special Assistant for National Security Affairs under President Obama. Brazilian police say there is strong evidence that bribes were paid to bring the last year's Olympic Games to Rio de Janeiro. 
The head of Brazil's Olympic Association, Carlos Nuzman, is being questioned by the police. His house and offices have been searched and his assets frozen. In June, Rio's former governor, Sergio Cabral, was jailed for bribery and money laundering related to the 2016 Olympics. What exactly are the claims against Mr Nuzman? BBC Brazil's Camila Costa is in Sao Paulo. Mr. Nuzman is accused by Brazilian prosecutors of acting as an intermediary in this sort of cash-for-vote scheme targeting African delegates of the International Olympics Committee. This is actually part of this big corruption probe that's been happening in Brazil for three years. They found out that one of the top executives supposedly involved in a graft scheme with the governor of Rio, former governor of Rio, Sergio Cabral, uh, was the one who supposedly paid African delegates to vote for Rio. So it is quite, um, uh, there's a lot going on at this moment. It sounds like there are accusations of, of ingrained corruption. How much international scope does this investigation have? Any other countries involved? Yes, this investigation has been going on for nine months with the collaboration of French authorities and American, North American authorities. Obviously, the head of Brazil's Olympic Committee denies uh, any wrongdoings and the executive in question who supposedly uh, paid bribes to the African delegates still hasn't been found by the police. But yes, it does have quite an international scope. Actually, the French authorities came upon avid that there could have been a bribe scheme or a cash-for-vote scheme, scheme in the bidding for 2016 while they were investigating doping allegations in Russian athletes. Rio won the, uh, the, the third ballot in this vote in 2009, having initially lost the first round of voting to Madrid. Does that uh, suggest uh, any wrongdoing in itself? Well, back then, Rio won by a landslide, actually, in the third round. It had lost, as you said, before to Madrid. Now, what some say is that, obviously, you need a lot more than just the African delegates to secure... Uh, a bidding for a whole city. But uh, what prosecu- Brazilian prosecutors are saying is that this scheme had been happening and obviously the African votes are quite important. What they say is that this could account for so, the number of votes that Rio had in the third round. Is it making big headlines there? Very much so. It it, it does add to the frustration, really, uh, of Brazilians with the institutions and politicians at this moment. I mean, the country has been involved in this huge uh, corruption probe in the past three years. Rio is in the middle of a fiscal crisis. And, I mean, when when we go back to 2009, when Rio won the bid, having, you know, with Brazil having just won the World Cup bid as well, there was a lot of hope. BBC Brazil's Camila Costa in Sao Paulo. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at our other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or for a roundup of the very best news on the BBC World Service, try our Global News podcast.
Coming up next, the Syrian army breaks an IS siege on a government enclave. But first, to the world of business. And the cow is seen as a sacred animal by millions of Hindus across India. Over the past year, many states have banned their slaughter. The Indian government has also proposed to restrict the sale of cattle at animal markets. As Rahul Tandon reports from Kolkata, this has had a huge impact on the world's second largest leather industry. We've got finished leather over here. We've got both the cow skin, we've got goat, we've got sheep. Imran Ahmed Khan is showing people products from his leather factory. That's a rare occasion nowadays. A national debate here on cow slaughter has affected one of India's largest industries. That's led to Imran thinking of shifting his business to Vietnam. He says these are difficult times. Millions of people are worried about it. They fear losing their jobs. We are looking to sack people, fire people, because we can't afford to keep them any longer. The government is framing policies and regulation that is uh, against the interests of the industry. So we look at it as a way that the government has launched a surgical strike on the industry and uh, given a death certificate to the industry that's uh, giving employment to millions of people. I've come to one of Kolkata's main tanneries. The machines that you can hear in the background are used to soften the leather. But over the last few months, they've hardly been used. Many states here have banned cow slaughter, and trucks carrying the hides of animals that have died naturally have also been attacked. Zia Nafis is the general secretary of the Kolkata Tanners Association. They said, leather, throw it away, burn the truck. So they're not slaughtered cow, they're... Animal which have died, but when the guys were stopped, they are saying it is hide. So you have slaughtered and got it. You can't prove when the hide is there, whether it is slaughtered or whether it is from a dead animal. Who will prove to them? Even I, I work mostly with goat skin. Even the goat skin truck was burned in Jharkhand. Because people thought it was cows. Cow, yeah. Well, they don't understand. I've come to a protest organized by leather workers. Most of the people here are Muslims or low caste Hindus like Neeraj Kumar. Thousands of us are losing our jobs. We are just sitting. We have nothing to do. What are we going to do? How will we feed our families? We will have to steal to survive. But as India celebrates 70 years of independence, the debate about the cow is part of a much wider one. It's about the direction that this country is going to take, secular or Hindu. Sandeep Roy is one of India's most respected political commentators. I think the whole cow issue has become a way to identify us versus the other in India. The cow has become an easy and quick litmus test for people to determine if somebody is sufficiently patriotic enough. And it is part of defining a certain kind of Indian as the true Indian, which is going to, by default, mean a Hindu Indian. That was the Indian political commentator Sandeep Roy ending that report by the BBC's Rahul Tandon in Kolkata. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Paul Henley. In another victory for President Assad's forces in Syria, government troops have broken a long-running siege of the eastern city of Deir al-Zur by the Islamic State group. The Syrian army and pro-government forces, including Hezbollah, reached an army brigade that's been trapped in the enclave alongside some 90,000 civilians for several years. 
In a televised statement, a spokesman for Syria's military general command announced the end of the siege. We have been able to, thanks to heroic actions, break the siege around our people that has been in place for more than three years in Deir al-Zur. The forces coming from the direction of Raqqa towards Deir al-Zur met with our brave forces who stood their ground in the city of Deir al-Zur, protecting its people and fighting the most incredible battles leading to heroism and sacrifice. So what is the strategic importance of this and what does it mean for the war in Syria? Aaron Lun is a writer on the Middle East and fellow at the Century Foundation think tank. Well, I think it has a lot of strategic importance for for the war against the Islamic State in eastern Syria and western Iraq, because this is one of the last, I mean, their, their remaining strongholds are all along the, the Euphrates River, and, and Deir ez-Zor is right on that river. For Syria in general, for the war between Bashar al-Assad and, and the Islamic State and many other groups, it's a little bit more complicated because it's a it's a bigger war. It also takes place in Western Syria, but but it's a big step, I think, and it's 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 a major victory for him in his attempts to sort of regain his power in Eastern Syria uh, along the Iraqi border. It's hardly likely to bring the war closer to an end, or is it? Well, maybe. I mean, that depends on what if, what what sort of end you you imagine. But if for the for the past couple of years, Bashar al-Assad has been. Well, he's he's winning slowly, in so far as any can anyone can win this, and I think you know this is another victory for him, and it 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 is, uh, you know, it might bring him closer to something resembling victory, at least, yes. And what do you imagine so-called Islamic State is going to do next, having lost this? Well, I think they'll continue to lose things, actually, because they're you know they're they're on a losing streak, and it doesn't seem to be to be ending anytime soon. They've lost Mosul in Iraq. They've lost earlier, before that, they lost Fallujah, Ramadi and other places. Now they're also about to lose uh, Raqqa in Syria, where US-backed Kurdish forces are, are taking that city. And now they have, uh, Assad has, has, has reopened the road to Deir Azor, where they're, they've been fighting this garrison for, for years. It's complicated uh, because there are a number of forces on the ground in the area. In addition to the Syrian government ones, there are Kurds, there are US-backed forces. What happens when they all meet? Well, I mean, the US-backed forces and the Kurds, that's basically the same constellation of, of groups. And then you have Assad's forces, which are backed by Russia, Iran, and, and some local militias and so on, and the Islamic State, of course. But And, and when they meet, you know, I, I, the, the, what seems to be happening right now is that they're basically carving up Syria along the Euphrates River, that you have Assad forces to the south of the river and the US-backed Kurdish forces uh, with some Arab allies to the north of the river. And then, of course, the question is, how sustainable is that? And we'll find out when they when uh, when they're done with the Islamic State, I imagine. The Swedish journalist and writer Aaron Lund there. So will any of the parties accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity during the war in Syria ever be brought to justice? The prospect seemed as far away as ever last year when Russia again vetoed any referral of the situation to the International Criminal Court. But then in December, the UN General Assembly voted to set up a new body, which is very lengthily called the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism to Assist in the Investigation and Prosecution of Persons Responsible for the Most Serious Crimes Under International Law Committed in the Syrian Arab Republic Since March 2011. A former French judge, Catherine Marquis-Well, was appointed as its head and today she gave her first news conference in Geneva. 
But if it can't prosecute crimes itself or refer them to the ICC, what can this body do, I asked her. This mechanism aims at actually making a step closer to prosecution and trials. I should add that there are ongoing prosecution investigations conducted by national jurisdiction, and the mechanism is also aimed at supporting this effort. While it will support national efforts, it will also prepare files which could later, and hopefully not too late, be taken over by international tribunals or courts. It's really about making sure that the evidence that has been collected is preserved. It is analyzed, as you know, preparing cases in the type of crimes we are talking about is a lot of work. And while a lot of information and evidence has been collected already, a lot of analysis needs to be made. Can you just explain who you're after, what sort of people and and what they're alleged to have done in Syria? Well, the General Assembly, which established the mechanism, gave it the mandate to facilitate the prosecution of the most serious crimes committed in Syria. The list of crimes we are talking about is a long list, and we're talking about everybody in the conflict, actually, having been alleged to have committed crimes. So um, after establishing the element that will allow the prosecution of such crimes, but that will also establish criminal responsibility for them. But I understand that you're not going to put people on trial directly. You haven't got a court. You're going to rely on individual national systems of justice. How reliable will they prove? Well, some of the states that have actually had prosecution offices and courts already undertaking investigation and having trials have proven that they have the capacity to do it. Now, it is obvious that given the scale of crimes committed in Syria, the prospect of having an international tribunal or court able to try the most serious crimes is important. I'm not going to deny that. Does it mean that nothing can be done until this becomes a possibility? I don't think so. I think that the work that the mechanism is meant to conduct is actually exactly aimed at making sure that when the time comes to have an international tribunal or court with jurisdiction for these crimes, the work has been prepared and cases can proceed. What will be the measure of whether or not you've succeeded? At this very moment, the use by national jurisdiction of the material we are able to provide to them Obviously, we're talking about courts and tribunals that respect international law standards, and that's very important, fairness of the trials, but also no prospect of a death penalty based on material that we have provided. Obviously, being able to establish files that prosecutors, either international or not, find useful that facilitate their work and speeds up their work will be the measurement. An additional measurement will obviously be whether the civil society of Syria and the people who have actually braved danger to bring information and evidence are finding the work that we do of use, are seeing the result. That will be an additional measurement. There's politics involved, of course. You're not going to get support from Russia, are you? There are politics involved, and we will obviously face obstacles. We know there will be evidence that we have not access to. I wouldn't want at this very early stage, even if there are expressions of uh, doubt or opposition vis-à-vis the existence of the mechanism, I don't think that should determine a possibility of cooperation. Catherine Marquis-Well, the head of the UN's new Syria war crimes mechanism. President Putin might be firmly on the side of the Syrian government in the continuing conflict, but his own figures suggest that he has big problems with Islamist militants at home. 
The Kremlin says 4,000 Russian citizens are currently fighting in Syria on the side of so-called Islamic State. Many of them are from the Republic of Dagestan in the North Caucasus. And it's not just Dagestani men, but also women and children who've ended up in Syria. Our Moscow correspondent Steve Rosenberg travelled to the mountains of Dagestan to find out why they were going and to hear about the risks that some of their relatives have been taking to bring them back. In the mountains of Dagestan, villages seem to grow right out of the rock of the Caucasus. And in these villages of stone, mosque minarets stretch through clouds and touch the heavens. People have always felt close to God here, yet some are being drawn away from these mountains by a radical Islam and a holy war. In his village of Kuma, Artur Magomedov tells me about his wife. She had become increasingly devout, he says, until one day, without telling him, she took their two children, 10-year-old Fatima and 3-year-old Maizarat, and went to Syria to join so-called Islamic State. My wife's uncle and brother came round to tell me she'd gone. Artur says he resolved to rescue his daughters. He borrowed money and flew to Istanbul, Turkey. A guide smuggled him into Syria to ISIS-controlled territory. Luckily, he'd received a tip-off by text message from a relative of his wife. He now knew where his family was, in Tapka. He went to see them. My kids were so happy to see me, Artur says. But my wife, well, she realised she was in trouble. A Sharia court granted Artur custody of his daughters. But leaving the caliphate is forbidden. To get home, they would have to escape. So one night, Artur drove to the border with Turkey. I picked up my little girl, Artur says, and told my other daughter, run. My youngest started crying. The Turkish border guards were just 50 metres away and they began shooting. We dived into an irrigation ditch and hid there with bullets flying overhead. We escaped through some long grass. Then I realised we were safe. A few weeks later, they were back home in Dagestan. But what about Artur's wife? I don't know where she is, he says. We're not in touch. She made her choice. The authorities say that 1,200 Dagestanis have left for Syria to fight for ISIS. That means that relative to its population, this Russian republic has produced 10 times more jihadists than Belgium, which is Europe's top source of fighters for the caliphate. Being one of the poorest parts of Russia, Dagestan is a fertile soil for radical ideas. Back in the village, Artur Magomedov shows me photos of his children. I ask him how his daughters are feeling now. Back in the spring, my youngest girl asked me, how come everyone else has a mother? And I don't. But I know the girls are still communicating with their mother. On social media, I told them not to, but I'm not going to stop them. After all, 
she is their mum, and they do miss her. Artur from Dagestan, ending that report from Steve Rosenberg. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story this hour. The Trump administration is scrapping a scheme called DACA that protected young undocumented immigrants in the United States from deportation. But speaking in the past hour, President Trump said that beneficiaries of the scheme did not need to be worried. I have a love for these people and hopefully now Congress will be able to help them and do it properly. And I can tell you in speaking to members of Congress, they want to be able to do something and do it right. And really, we have no choice. We have to be able to do something. And I think it's going to work out very well. And long term, it's going to be the right solution. In other news, the UN chief says there's an urgent need to give the stateless Muslim Rohingya minority currently fleeing Myanmar some form of legal status. The army chief in Lesotho has been shot dead by rival officers. And one of Colombia's most powerful drug gangs says it wants to hand itself in. This is Paul Henley with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The UN Secretary-General has appealed to the authorities in Myanmar to end violence in the country's Rakhine state, which he warned risked destabilising the region. Antonio Guterres has written to the UN Security Council after the latest clashes led to 400 deaths and an exodus, exodus rather, of Rohingya Muslims to Bangladesh. But some local people in Myanmar say that the outside world is only getting part of the story and should be paying attention to what Rohingya militants are doing, the latest accusations being that they attack dozens of police posts and an army base. Here are two Buddhist women in Myanmar. I saw the militants came to our village and attacked the villagers with swords, so I feared for my life and fled. I couldn't take anything and fled with just the clothes I'm wearing now. Muslim women fed their cattle on our paddy fields and destroyed them. Muslim men destroyed the pagoda with heavy weapons and chopped the Buddha statue with swords. We could not stay in our village. We have no arms while they have large weapons. So what do we know about what's currently happening in Rakhine State? Sanjoy Majumda is where many of the people have been fleeing to in Cox's Bazaar near the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar. Well, we're hearing that uh, there's been an increase in violence uh, across on the Myanmar side in Rakhine State, which is where the Rohingyas have come in from. Um, it's, of course, very difficult to verify from where we are, except that we have seen over the past few days uh, a lot of smokes, um, a lot of smoke rising uh, from presumably villages which are burning. Um, people who we've met, I mean, throughout they've been telling us that they've, you know, they're fleeing violence. But it's getting more and more dramatic. Uh, they've been talking about how uh, villages are being surrounded, attacked, people are being shot dead. Almost universally, they blame uh, the Myanmar army or police forces for these attacks. Um, again, very difficult to verify for us. 
but certainly there's evidence uh, from some of the injuries I've seen. Uh, I saw a little girl about eight years old with a bullet wound to her head, other men, younger men with bullet wounds to the arms. So clearly, um, you know, they're, they're leaving a situation which is very volatile and extremely dangerous. The BBC's Sanjoy Majumda. Dr Lynn Kwok is from the foreign policy think tank, the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and she's been giving me some background to the situation in Myanmar. I asked her if it was too easy to talk about a backlash of Buddhist nationalism there. I think if we're talking about the role of religion, we need to be quite careful to distinguish between communal conflict between Rakhine Buddhists and Muslim Rohingya on the one hand, and what we've seen recently in the Rakhine state, which has been insurgencies by some Muslim Rohingya to basically protest government treatment of Rohingya Muslims. So I think in the first case, in the case of communal conflict, I think religion and the role of Buddhist nationalism undoubtedly plays a significant role. The Rohingya have been a lightning rod for anti-Muslim sentiment in Myanmar, which is also seen elsewhere in the country. Muslims are generally regarded as too populist, that just too many of them around, too rich, they are just way too wealthy and just different. The fact that Rohingya in the Rakhine state are exceedingly poor doesn't change or affect sentiment in the Rakhine state or more broadly in Myanmar in general. And neither, presumably, does the fact that Muslims make up about 4% of the population. Exactly. Muslims only make up 4% of Myanmar's population in general. However, in the Rakhine state, that number is quite a lot larger. It's about 43%. And I think that can help explain some of the sentiment and some of the problems that we're seeing in the Rakhine state. However, as I said earlier, what we're seeing right now isn't communal conflict that we saw you know, from 2012 onwards. What we are seeing right now is a conflict of quite a different kind. It's an insurgency against the government. And I think in this case, religion has has played a less significant role. The insurgents are not targeting Buddhist civilians, but in fact, they're targeting police outposts and military bases. And in doing so, as I mentioned, they're protesting the shameful treatment, rather, of the Rohingya, which international organisations have all roundly condemned as very likely crimes against humanity. Why do you think that Aung San Suu Kyi is silent about what's going on? Well, one view is that the Nobel Peace Prize recipient has kept her head down about the situation because there's very little she can do. And this, if she said anything about it, it would really expose the limits of her power. The military controls the key ministries in Myanmar, namely border, defense and home affairs. But I take a less sanguine view. Aung San Suu Kyi's failure to do even fairly basic things, which require no cooperation whatsoever from the military, is damning. She's failed to visit the Rakhine state. She's failed to condemn the heavy-handed security response that we're seeing there. And she's even failed to stop repeated blanket government denials. Just last month, a committee headed by the vice president found no human rights abuses in the Rakhine state. And I find this finding rather laughable, considering the amount of separate but corroborating evidence put forward by organisations like the United Nations and Human Rights Watch, which demonstrate that far from there being no human rights abuses, that there have been extrajudicial killings, rape, arson and torture recorded across many witnesses, across many witness accounts. So I find what's going on, the the denials really laughable and reprehensible, really. And are there Buddhist nationalists, including Buddhist monks in Myanmar at the moment, speaking out publicly in favour of the violence against the Rohingya Muslims? I don't think we can put all the monks into one clear basket. We have the most prominent of Buddhist groups, I suppose, is the Mabata, which has since been rebranded, so it's under a new name right now, but I think most of the international community 
community know it best by Mabata. And um, that's the Association for the Protection of Race and Religion. And it's a loose grouping of monks. And within that group, we have some very right wing and extremist monks who are seizing hold of the violence that's happening in the Rakhine state right now, almost as proof that Muslims cannot be trusted, that the Rohingya cannot be trusted. And this is clearly problematic because they are fanning the flames of anti-Muslim sentiment. And this could have hugely destabilizing effects for Myanmar. And if I were the Myanmar government right now, I would be sitting up and doing something. The anti-Rohingya conflict in the Rakhine state could very quickly, given how anti-Muslim sentiment is being fanned, it could quickly become broader anti-Muslim conflict in the rest of the country. And this has happened. There is precedent for that. It happened in 2012. It happened in 2013, where very contained, well, not contained, but limited violence in a limited area then spread out beyond the borders of Rakhine to broader Myanmar. So that's one group within the Mabata. And then you have the other group who strongly believe that Buddhism needs to be defended. However, they feel that Buddhism can be defended in through more inclusive means, including through the preaching of tolerance and peace. And what we really need to see more of is those voices come to the fore more. But in the battle where, you know, shouting seems to be gaining more ground, I, I, unfortunately, I, I don't see that happening. That was Dr. Lwin Lin Kwok, a non-resident fellow at Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to this edition of NewsHour. From me and the team, bye-bye for now. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.